All right. We're celebrating Christmas, as you obviously know, and one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas is because Jesus Christ was born. It is the reason, of course. And there's an outline that's available that looks exactly like the one I'm holding in my hands. It's in the bulletin, and you will find it of benefit as we look to some things on the front and the back of that to help guide us here (coughs) in what God has for us. We're going to be in John chapter 8, and the question we're asking and going to be answering is a question that really comes out of that passage in John 8. Who is Jesus? As the religious leaders came and asked who he is. There's lots of confusion as to who Jesus is. And there's confusion in America by Americans who claim to be Christians. And there's confusion amongst other religions as well. Let me give you a little snapshots of others' views of who Jesus is around the world. And even right here, folks. In Judaism, here's a little snapshot of what some might say. While the Talmud and Talarat Yeshua affirm the execution of Jesus, they both deny that Jesus was resurrected rather the gardener stole the body. In Islam, Muslims certainly honor Jesus. He is mentioned in the Quran. He is uh, highly revered as a prophet. But they either deny that Jesus was crucified or that he died on the cross. Most simply believe that Jesus' death was an illusion. And so that is Islam. When you hear say that we all worship the same God, we do not. Jesus is our God. And they do not believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. When the New Age movement, Oprah Winfrey, we all love Oprah, of course, but uh, that sense of uh, belief is that Jesus is seen as more of a completed of a spiritual evolution. He is just sort of this uh, enlightened master and sort of a spiritual realm. But maybe literal flesh? No, probably not. But in America, it's interesting, these statistics that were taken by the Barna Group, a Christian polling ministry, 92% of Americans believe that Jesus is an historical figure. Now, that's the upside. That's the good thing. And why that's good is this. Because if you're thinking about inviting someone, say, to next Sunday services or to next Christmas Eve services, they are most likely to believe that Jesus is an historical figure who is someone that we probably respect and understand in a very positive light. And so that's a good thing about this belief. The negative side is that 56% believe that Jesus is God. Just 56%. Of the millennials, who are the 20-something crowd, that drops a little bit more to 48%. That's not a good trend. 52% have Jesus... Uh, as their savior in the sense of, oh no, 52% believe that Jesus committed sins, that Jesus was a sinner just like you and me. 52%, half of America have that belief system about Christ. 68% of women, 56% of men have a commitment, a personal commitment. I put my faith in Jesus. And that's the stat there. Here's an interesting one. Those making over 100000 per year are significantly less... 53%, to have made such a commitment than those who are making between 50 and 100,000, 63%, or those making less than 50, 65%. The lower your income, the higher your faith. Now, that's not to say that high incomes are necessarily that way. How, how many, for example, are over 100? <laughs> so, Jesus said, remember what Jesus said about 
it's hard, it's really, really hard for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Because sometimes there's a tendency not for us who are rich here, but for many in the world to have a belief that I need anything beyond my bank account. And so it's hard to get there when you have dependency on things of this world. And here's the one that was probably the most disturbing. They're all disturbing. But notice this trend of those who have some sort of a faith commitment to Jesus. 71% of elders, that would be sort of the 70-ish up, folks. 71%. Then you drop down to the boomers. I am a boomer. And so that's going to be like 70 to 50, somewhere in that range. So it drops down to 65% of boomers have this faith in Jesus. Then you go to the Gen Xers, who might be the, the 50 to the 30 crowd. It drops down to 59%. Then you go to the millennials, who are below 30, and that number drops down to 46%. That's not a trend that would support the fact that in America we're going to have a church growth phenomenon of revival taking place. It becomes more like, as I have toured Europe, where church buildings are more like a a museum piece to take pictures of the stained glass windows as opposed to a vitality of believers gathering to worship Jesus Christ as God. So there's this trend that is taking place in America where there is a decline in their belief system about Jesus and a decline in the faith that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask and answer the question, Who is Jesus? Who are you? Let me read from John chapter 8, which is the basis of what we're going to discuss. It is all about the light, and we'll see how Jesus is that light. And in John 8, 12, we read these words. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge me according to the flesh. But I'm not judging anyone. But even if I judge, do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. They are one. They are both God, two persons of the Trinity. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said to them again, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. 
For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, and here's the question, Who are you? And Jesus said, What I have been saying to you from the very beginning. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And that question that these Pharisees, these religious leaders ask, Who are you? The the problem with the Pharisees is not an intellectual understanding. They had more knowledge than the masses of the people that were surrounding them. Their problem was a heart problem, not an intellectual problem. But they do ask a good question, who are you? And so he goes on and then notice this description. Let me get into what Jesus was saying that draws them to this question. And it is this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but I will have the light of life. Let's take that first phrase I've underlined. I am the light of the world. Now something that's significant that we need to know about John 8 is this. When Jesus was saying in John 8, I am the light of the world, if you turn back into John chapter 7, verse 2, you'll notice the context of his statement. In John chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths, or the tabernacles, was another way, was near. So he is in the season of the feast of the tabernacle. And what that means is this, that as Jesus was gathered together, in this particular case, the prior story is about a woman that was caught in adultery, and they brought her to Jesus to see what he would say. And he said, essentially, those who were without sin cast the first stone. Well, where was all that conversation taking place? And why did Jesus say here, I am the light of the world? That is based upon what the historical times were dictating. Jesus was gathered together in the court of the women. Here's a little diagram of the temple area. And it's a little bit tricky, but if you notice on the, uh, on the right... Right In the middle box, it is the court of the women. That's where Jesus was gathered together with them. And there, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, why is that significant? I put on the back side some description of why that is significant. Let me just read the second paragraph to show why the digging deeper can be helpful to you throughout the course of the week. <clears throat> the backdrop for what is taking place during this feast comes to us from the Mishnah, which is a collection of oral traditions commentary that Jews will use, some Jewish law of rabbis. The Mishnah describes the illumination of the temple during the Feast of the Tabernacles. Remember, John 7, 2. We are in the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the booths. During this pilgrimage feast, there were four candlesticks, 75 feet tall, with four golden bowls on top and four ladders resting against each. For use of priestly descent, stood at the top of the ladders holding ten-gallon pitchers filled with pure oil, which they poured into each of the bowls. Ten gallons. What came from the scene was so light, so bright, that it says there was no courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up with the light of the libation water well ceremony. And so Jesus says, I am the light of the world. As he stands there, There is a 70-foot-tall candle lit. 
that is illuminating all around everywhere. And the Pharisees understand that this light, he's not just saying that out of nowhere. He's saying that based upon what they are celebrating in their Feast of the Tabernacles where God had provided them. And Leviticus 23 talks about how they should be provided for and, and show how God had cared for them in their journey. And so Jesus is playing off the theme of the light literally in the world of the court of the women so that he could become the light of the world. And so Jesus again says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When they hear that, they are not pleased about what he is saying. Because what he is beginning to say and what he has been saying up to this point is that he is God. And they're beginning to understand that. John later wrote, when he wrote 1 John, John wrote, of course, John 8. Now he writes 1 John. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And so Jesus is proclaiming himself as God. I am light. Psalm 27, God is light. And there is so much in Scripture. We could go on for hours about all the passages that reveal how God is light And we'll see some of those as we move forward. So Jesus is proclaiming himself to the Pharisees. When they ask, well, who are you? He's already said, I am God. And he wants us to be defining that way. And I'll show you why that is so critical as we go through this. Jesus is our eternal God. He is Jehovah God in human flesh. And that's what happens that we celebrate next week. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. And I love this little phrase that I want to take apart. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. Let's look at that. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. How many of us can say, I know where I came from before I was born. I know where I'm going after I die. Jesus is proclaiming it very clearly. Notice, let me just break that down. Jesus is proclaiming that I know what my past is. I have an eternal past. He's describing himself as not as this human figure that suddenly started to exist, but I have always pre-existed to my human birth. And so he proclaims that. And notice, for example, in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means by priority. He has the highest priority. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, angels. All things have been created through him and for him. In Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, when God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus was there doing that. Jesus existed then. Never think that on Christmas Day, Finally, Jesus came into existence. Now, I may be speaking to the choir literally and figuratively speaking. I know I'm speaking to some choir members here. But we know that Jesus has always existed. I don't want to assume that we all already understand that. Jesus has an eternal past. And he's telling the Pharisees, I have always pre-existed my existence here in human flesh. He was the creator of the world. We see Jesus first appearing on the scene in Genesis chapter 16 where he came to Hagar. Hagar was the Egyptian handmaid of Abraham and Sarah. 
Well, God had come to Abraham and Sarah and told them, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a nation. They're going to be so populated that it's like the sand of the, of the seashore. Well, Sarah wasn't getting pregnant. So we all know the story, hopefully, that Abraham then, therefore, is given by Sarah Hagar. He goes in and lays with her. She has a son. His name is Ishmael. Well, Hagar is kicked out of the house because no one likes a, a wife that... A, no one, that's why we shouldn't have polygamy. No woman wants to have another woman who's getting pregnant and when she can't get pregnant. That's not a happy home, happy wife, happy life. That's not what Abraham was experiencing. And so she kicks her out. She's wandering away. And she has no place to go. She is the, the, the single mom with no means of support. So Jesus shows up. Jesus comes to her. The angel or, as he's referred to there, is what we call the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Jesus first, for the very first time, shows up to this Egyptian handmaid who has been forced into some sort of a sex slave operation by Abraham. And she gives birth to a baby by the name of Ishmael. And God says, I'm going to bless you too, Hagar. Out of that ugliness, I'm going to bless you. And now we have the whole war of Jews and Arabs. And that's where it started. But Jesus was there. Jesus showed up. So never think that December the 25th, the date we use to celebrate the birth of Jesus, that Jesus is finally getting on the scene to help us out. Jesus has always pre-existed and occasionally he would show up to the people of the world in those days. But he also has an eternal future. He says, I know where I've come from. I've been in heaven all this time with the Father creating the heavens and the earth and caring for people like Hagar. But I know where I'm going. I am the eternal God. Notice where Jesus is going. Here are three levels of his progression of future that is even future to some of us here as well. It's in Revelation 1 that we see what Jesus looks like today. It says in the middle of the lamp stands, John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. In the middle of the lamp stands, I saw one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus. This is John seeing Jesus in heaven as he looks today. So when you get to heaven, this is the sort of thing you're going to see. If you have loved ones who passed away this year, this is who they are worshiping. And so he saw someone who's like the Son of Man. He's clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. He's like a priest. He is a high priest. Hebrews chapter 2 and 4. His head and his hair were white like white wool. He is pure. He is holy. His eyes were like flame of fire. He can penetrate and understand and see in sight and cast judgment. His feet were like burnished bronze when it is made to glow in a furnace. And his voice is like the sound of many waters when he speaks. His word truly penetrates. Because he goes on to say, And in his right hand he held seven stars as he holds the, the ministry of what is taking place in the church. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's why the Bible is called a sharp two-edged sword, because it penetrates as far as the division of soul and spirit, penetrates deep in our hearts. That's why we should be students of God's Word, not just dabblers in God's Word. And so his face was like a sun shining in its strength, the light of Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. My light shines brightly in heaven. 
his face like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed in his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. Why did Jesus come and take on human flesh like a bond slave, according to Philippians chapter 2? Because if we saw Jesus as he really could be seen in all of his glory, you and I would be falling all over each other like dead people. Because we couldn't handle the truth. And this is who Christ is in heaven. John is still on earth. But John's receiving a revelation of Jesus in heaven. And so Jesus is, is protecting us from this overwhelming volume of light and richness of who Christ is. And all of his glory is God. And so Jesus says, that's where I'm going. After I am resurrected and then when I ascend into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, when he ascended into heaven, he took on this form of the Son of Man, of a priest with the glowing white hair and the, the face that would shine the glory of God as he once again took his rightful place as God in heaven. This is who we will see when we die. If you're a believer in Jesus and you die believing in Jesus as the forgiver of your sins, this is the Christ you will worship in heaven. And you, like John, will be overwhelmed, as will I. Jesus is also going to come back a second time. He's going to come to this earth. He's going to establish a kingdom on this earth. It's going to be a righteous kingdom on this earth. And for a thousand years, Jesus is going to rule in that kingdom according to Revelation chapter 20. And here is part of what that kingdom will look like in Isaiah 60. No longer will you have sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord and everlasting light and your God for your glory. When Jesus comes back as the Messiah and finally establishes the kingdom he really came to create the first time, and that's why the kingdom message of Matthew 5 through 7 is what he was proposing to the people of that day, way back when he first came. They rejected him. He withdrew the offer. And now he's going to come back a second time, the second coming of Jesus. He will establish a thousand-year kingdom, and he will be the Messiah, and he will be worshipped in Jerusalem as the temple is rebuilt and it establishes a place of worship that will have all the tremings of Judaism, but with Christ as the Messiah. And Jesus will be the light of the world, for the Lord is an everlasting light. And that's what Jesus is saying. I know where I'm going. And someday you will see me for all of my glory. Don't wait for then to suddenly claim Christ as God. And then finally, that kingdom will be over after a thousand years. And Revelation 21 and 22, God is going to do away with the earth and the heavens. And he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And when that new heaven and new earth is taking place, and those of us who are believers in Jesus, we will be there with everyone else. And it says there in Revelation 21 about Jesus, And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the light. When we get to heaven and this new heaven and new earth is created, Jesus will be the thing that lights all the existence of all of us who come and worship Him. We're not turning on lights. We're not losing power. We're not trying to stand in, you know, Cal Edison. We are truly worshiping the light of the world. And he will be literally the light of the world. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring the glory into it. So when Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, he's speaking powerfully 
about his existence then and about where he has come from and where he is going. And we need to see the vastness of who Jesus is. Never downplay, never cheapen who Jesus is. Never just surrender to the concept that he's just a good prophet. Never surrender that he somehow began his life in existence on December the 25th. Never diminish who he is, because I'm going to show you why that's so important here in just a moment. And so how should we respond to that? Here's what Jesus goes on to say. Jesus again spoke to them, going back to 8.12, I am the light of the world, and now to emphasize the latter part of that same verse. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If Jesus is truly God, then it requires a response from you and me. It means we should do something. That's just a belief that I intellectually sort of understand, but don't fully get it all. But it's a response that should come from my heart. I follow him. I don't walk in darkness, but I will have the light of life. And so therefore, I allow that light to reveal the darkness that may be in my own life because I've got sins in there that probably need to be rooted out. I've got thoughts. I've got behaviors. I've got attitudes. And those things need the light of Christ as God to shine in my heart that he would begin to shape me into who he is. It says in John 8, 23, Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. And here is this incredibly important phrase. Please hear this phrase. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's nothing politically correct about that. It's highly intolerable to sinners who don't believe that I am he. Now, when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, I'll tell you what the Pharisees heard him say. The Pharisees who were there saying, who are you, who are you, who are you? Here's what they heard Jesus say. When Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, they hear him saying, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah God. It's in Exodus chapter 3 where God came to Moses. And he came to Moses and said to him, I am that I am. That's Yahweh. That is the self-existent one. That is the eternal one. And for Jesus to say, I am Yahweh, I am in human flesh of Yahweh, that I am God in human flesh, that's blasphemous to the Pharisees. They couldn't imagine that anybody would claim to do that. He says, the light of the world, yeah, you're God. Now you're saying you're Yahweh in human flesh, Jehovah God. We just can't abide by that. So who really are you? That's what they keep asking. Who are you? We can't believe that that's who you are. Even to Jesus again and again by miracles, as they will see in John 11, that he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is doing a miraculous thing, and he's proclaiming a miraculous truth that Yahweh God, I am he. And here is the catch. Unless I believe that Jesus is God in human flesh... I still am dead in my sins. Now why is it so important that we get the word out that what people believe is so essential that their faith can't be just in something vague? Our faith can't be just in the fact that I'm just going to do my very best. My faith can't be in the fact that Jesus is merely a great prophet and there are many great religious leaders, many great religions out there. 
I, I can't just say that everyone is sort of worshiping the same God. Jesus is actually declaring that unless you believe that I am God, Yahweh God, and you get that, unless you have full assent to that and commit to that as the basis of the operation of your faith, you can't be forgiven your sins. That's astounding. You and I, we who know the truth, we need to help those that we love and care about, that some of us will be with this Christmas. To understand the basis of forgiveness. That it doesn't just come in a sort of a vague, oh, I'm really sorry. But it comes through a God who is Jesus and God in human flesh. Yahweh God. I am He. Yahweh. So you and I, as we understand this, we take this message and we reveal it to our own hearts and say, God, See, Jesus, as a man, can take my place on the cross. But only Jesus, as God, has the right to forgive me. I can't forgive myself, but God can. So that's why we need Jesus as man and Jesus as God, perfectly together, Yahweh and human flesh, so that my sins can be forgiven. That I must believe. So when we communicate to people what it takes to become a follower of Jesus... We need to communicate clearly and accurately where their faith rests. And it's in the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh. So allow that light of Christ to reveal the darkness in my life so my sins are forgiven by God. And then let his light shine through me to others. As in John 12, 35, Jesus continues this. Because they go into this feast of dedication, the, uh, what we call Hanukkah. And it says there, while you have the light, believe in the light. He's talking about himself here. I am that light. While you have me as the light, believe in me as the light. Why? So that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. (laughs) Well, shouldn't you stay there and just have a little follow through, you know? No, I'm delivering the truth. And here is the truth for you and for me. We are, we who claim to be believers in Jesus, we are to be that light to others. And one of the most blessed thing you can do at Christmas season when you are going to be with family members that wouldn't be your friend except you married into their family. <laughs> one of the best things you can do is to be the light of Jesus. Because Jesus has given to us that light that we can shine to others. We're more like the moon. We're reflecting the light. But the light can be in us so that others can see that we're sons of light. Don't ever back away at work, in your neighborhood, with your friends, with your family. Never back away from being a child of the light. And let that light shine in your attitude, in your facial expressions, in your gracious kindness. In all the deeds and behaviors that we have, let the light of Christ be revealed. Now here are some of the things that's really taking place in the backdrop to this. Let me just go back in time. Way back in Ezekiel's days, 500 B.C. or so in that era of time, there was a temple. The temple was established and Ezekiel is learning about this temple that God has described for them. And God's glory is in that temple. 
And so the temple in Ezekiel 8, 4 says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there in the temple like the appearance which I saw on the plain. So Ezekiel is learning about the glory of God in the temple. And then God says in Ezekiel 8, this is what he says. He says, look, you folks, you've got idols in the temple. You've got an Asherah pole. And you're worshiping idolatry in the temple of God? I'm not going to allow that to take place. I am a very jealous God, God says. And so I don't want to be one who is practicing idolatry of things. At the same time, God says, I want my glory to shine through you. So I need to be very careful how I walk. I walk in obedience to God. Jesus, in fact, in John 8, in the latter part of the John 8, Jesus is turning people away. He says, look, this isn't easy. Unless you abide in my truth, you're not my follower. Don't play games with me. Jesus would push more people away than he'd draw to himself because he says, this is hard. When you say you're a follower of Jesus, it means something. It means how my priorities are, how my money is spent, how my time is invested, how I love and care for people. It begins to transform relationships and priorities of life. And Jesus, unless you're going to let the light of Christ shine through you, man, don't waste the time. So it's amazing in John 8 that Jesus... Push people away. Because he said, I don't think you have the kind of commitment I'm looking for. It's incredible. In John 6, the same thing happened. As people realized, wow, this is pretty tough to follow this guy. And many of his disciples withdrew, it says in John 6. And so the temple, going back to the temple, sorry, got sidetracked. In Ezekiel 8, the, the glory of God is in the temple, the light. Shekinah glory of God. But there's idols. And God says, I'm not going to compete. You want the idolatry? I'm leaving. So the glory of God begins to leave the temple. And in Ezekiel 9 and 10, Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub in which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen whose loins was riding the case. And so it goes to the threshold, the doorway of the temple. It's moving from the Holy of Holies to the doorway of the temple. Then the glory of God leaves the temple completely and goes to the east gate of Jerusalem. And it says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim as it goes to the east gate of Jerusalem. And then the glory goes to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, it says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of the Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And here's a little map. So the glory of God is in the temple, on what we now call the Temple Mount. You see the Dome of the Rock, and there's a mosque. It's no coincidence that the Dome of the Rock and the mosque is where Solomon's temple once was. But it leaves that temple, goes to what we call the East Gate. The wall that we see in Jerusalem today looks like that. And then it goes to the Mount of Olives. This is the glory of God. This is, and Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. It's that light. It's the Shekinah light, the sign of glory of God. It is leaving the temple because there's idols there. And I'm not going to coexist with idolatry. So he leaves. What God is indicating is that he's serious about calling us into a commitment to Jesus Christ as the eternal God. And the light of Christ is evident in me. He says, I want that light to shine. But I'm not going to compete with idolatry. 
Don't make me have to compete with idolatry. It's interesting because when Jesus comes back, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The very place that the, the, the Shekinah glory ascends back up into heaven away from the temple, Jesus comes back. As a second coming, he lands on that Mount of Olives and he splits it in two and he begins to reform the earth and the people of the earth into a new worship of kingdom. And that's the beauty of Christ. He says, I will replace that. I will come back again to that same location. But what Jesus is saying to us now, we are the temple of God. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you have, you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And so what God is calling us to, He's, he's calling us to understand that much like Ezekiel's temple lost the glory because it was competing with idolatry, because the light of Christ in us needs to shine so that we can be that temple where the glory of God reigns in us. And what happens to some believers is that idolatry of the world, things of this world, attitudes, possessions, priorities, they begin to squeeze this temple. And the glory of God is not shining brightly. It's what we call the quenching of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is no longer powering us. But it's all about human strength. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, don't walk in darkness, follow me. He's inviting us to be the temple where his light shines. And we glorify his name by how we live our lives and how we stand boldly and confidently for Jesus as the God, the one and only way to heaven. And we proclaim it unashamedly because that's what Jesus did and that's what he calls us into as well and we be the light of Jesus that's interesting this is the eighth day of Hanukkah this is the feast of the dedication when they went back and cleansed the temple after the corruption uh, that had taken place with the Maccabees before Christ and what the Jewish people love to do and those who celebrate Hanukkah these days is here's have a menorah like this and the menorah what they Jewish people will do is to take this center candle, it is called the shamash, and they will light it. You see that the shamash is the highest of the candles on the menorah. And the reason for that is because it is the servant candle. The servant candle then is used to light the other on each day, and today being the eighth day, to be lit. As all of them will eventually be lit this day. And what is beautiful about this is this shamash, servant candle, is Christ. You see Christ in all the Judaistic practices. And so Christ is for all of us the servant candle who stands high so that he can be the light of the world and he can light within us the power the priorities the commitment he lights within us the servant candle of Christ let Christ be your shamash that he would light the way for you and we invite you into that relationship where you believe in Jesus as God because only believing that can you have your sins forgiven and confess them to Christ And say, now God, let your light shine through me.
Let me pray to that end. Father, help us that we would be people who really knows what it means and the seriousness of this message. That when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, He's not just inviting us to hang lights on our house or in a church. He's inviting us into a relationship, God. We see it, we believe it, where Jesus is God and, and in Him, Yahweh God in that human flesh. You invite us into that life where Your light shines through us as You are our Shamash. And You light us to light the way for others. God, may we in this room be those who spread the light of Christ. That let others know that unless you believe that Jesus is the great I am, they will die in their sins. Father, help us to not surrender to the compromise of political correctness and religions by surrendering the truth that Jesus is the way to God because he is the God. And help us to boldly and confidently share that message. But also, Father, oh, Father, help us to not be arrogant. Help us to be humble. Help us to be a servant of love like Jesus. And that, Father, in our deeds, in our attitudes, the light of Christ shines because we are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as the Spirit dwells within us and that fruit of the Spirit of our temple, our body, is made known to those around us. God, help us to be people like that who takes our calling seriously to spread the light of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.